Fathers, I noted earlier it's always a privilege to come to the end of a study for it's uh, always our goal when we start something to finish it, Father. And especially when we take our time and we work through a study over a period of weeks and months, uh, it's not always possible, Father, to, to come back to what we started and, and complete it. And so we're thankful that in our case, Father, you, you saw fit to grace us with that opportunity to, to finish what we began here, to see the whole of it. Especially knowing, Father, that these were the last words Paul wrote. We have, um, we have some special significance there to consider what would a man in his walk of life with, with all that he had done, what would he be thinking in the last days of his life, Father? And that must be something worth holding on to for us now. And we thank you that you gave it to us. And we thank you that you gave us this place, you gave us the people who lead this class with me, and you gave us uh, an audience that has an interest in it. And with that, Father, you can do a great work in our hearts We know many in here have already seen change in their life, have already considered things um, that they didn't consider before. There'll be days ahead, Father, when we may find ourselves in the midst of difficult times and the the teaching that Paul gave Timothy will come to mind and will help us stay faithful to the mission. We pray you'd use it that way, Father, to prepare us to do the best work we can in the days you give us so that we will see the reward that you gave to Paul and all who loved your appearing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we conclude our study of 2 Timothy. If you're counting, it's the 17th New Testament book that we've studied at Verse by Verse Ministry. As we finish the book and go into the last chapter, I think it's good to summarize a little bit of where we've been. Paul's letter has been an in-depth examination of a certain problem, a certain weakness in the church in Ephesus. And the problem that we've been examining has not only been one for the church and for the city, but I think also one personally for Timothy. What is that problem? What is the weakness that we've been studying? It's moving away from ministry, moving away from bold teaching and bold preaching of the Word of God so as to avoid persecution, to save yourself rather than to persevere. And as we've learned over the several weeks we've been studying, the church in Ephesus was a very difficult assignment for a man like Timothy. It was a pagan and worldly city that knew nothing of the Jewish Scriptures. It was vexed by false teachers who sought to undermine the true gospel. And Timothy was a young man. He was inexperienced as a pastor and a teacher. And now to add to all of that, you have the church undergoing the beginnings of what would become decades of Roman persecution. And under those circumstances then, Paul says many leaders in the church in Asia had already retreated from their public witness. They weren't pastoring anymore. They weren't teaching anymore. Paul mentioned a number of these men who we studied, men who had ruined their testimonies by shrinking back, probably to save their skin. And Paul's comments to Timothy along the way have also suggested that Paul thought Timothy might be inclined to do exactly the same thing. And as you look from chapter 1 through 3, which is what we've already studied, you find Paul working to reinforce the faith and diligence of this young man. He's asked him to follow his own example in suffering for the gospel. He's told him, don't neglect this gift that God's given you, which he gave to you specifically so that you could do the ministry that you're doing. He reassured Timothy that God gave you a spirit of courage and of power. He didn't give you one of weakness and and a fear. So walk in that spirit. And as we got into chapter 2, he started to draw from examples like soldiers and athletes and farmers and so on to reinforce the fact that you need self-discipline if you're going to do this job. You need patience. You need to endure hardships. You do it knowing a reward comes only at the end. And even if you should suffer persecution, and even if it should lead to death, you're just walking in Christ's footsteps. He did the same thing for you. In the end, the Lord is expecting us to remain faithful no matter what. And then finally, to put it all into perspective, last week Paul started to talk about false teaching and and persecution, the things that Timothy faced, 
And he said, you have to avoid those distractions. In other words, you have to steer clear of the men in the church who are trying to move the church off the foundations of true faith. And he said, you know, you've seen some already, some bond servants who've fallen prey to this. But that's not the last word. He said, some of them, by faithful men like you, some of them may be rescued. You may be able to rescue those who have opposed the truth. And then lastly, he said, persecution is not cause for any great alarm. You're living in difficult times. Mankind is destined to progress from bad to worse. And it's going to deceive a few along the way. The world's going to deceive a few. But in the midst of all this, the church will be a target for persecution. Hold fast. The Lord will give you strength. And as you continue to do what Scripture asks you to do and teach it and commit to teaching it, the Lord is going to be there for you. It was a general call to not think too much of the world, but to focus on the future. That last point where he says, so long as the church continues in what it learns from Scripture, it will gain its strength and it will hold fast. That last point is what leads us into chapter 4. Paul is going to conclude his letter with an eternal, everlasting charge to Timothy and to the church. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. If you scan through all of Paul's letters, you'll be hard-pressed to find such formal language. This is a very unusual statement by Paul. To solemnly charge means to declare or to testify under oath. Paul's saying he's issuing this charge as a testimony of the Lord. In a sense, what he's saying is, I'm not playing around here. I'm saying these instructions that you are to follow are specific instructions from God Almighty. And so you better hear them as such. And since we now have them ourselves recorded in Scripture, then we know that the Lord intended these words to be directed to the church in general, not just to Timothy. So the charge goes beyond him. It goes to the church, to men who do as Timothy did, who have a similar role in the church. And moreover, Paul says this charge that he's issuing is witnessed by God and Christ, who Paul calls the one who will judge the living and the dead. Paul's reminding Timothy that his faithfulness to this solemn charge is going to be evaluated one day by Christ. And notice there are two groups of people being judged, the living and the dead, and two moments that are mentioned here, Christ's appearing and at his kingdom. Those two pairings are linked. The living are the saved, those who have salvation. And they will be judged at Christ's appearing. So the judging of the living is at Christ's appearing. Typically today we call that moment the rapture. It's when Christ appears the next time he'll be seen by anyone, when he appears to claim his bride and bring her home. Following that moment, we see the judgment seat of Christ. Believers then get judged for the sake of receiving reward. Notice the second half of those pairings, though. There is the dead. The dead, of course, are unbelievers. They will be judged at the end of the kingdom. That judgment is called the Great White Throne Judgment, and that's a judgment in which the penalty will be assessed for sin, for unbelief, and that penalty is the second death. He calls Christ the judge of the living at his appearing and the judge of the dead at the end of the kingdom. And Timothy needs to consider then carefully what Paul's about to say. 
That is, Timothy cannot dismiss what he is about to hear merely as Paul's good advice, optional counsel. He's on notice. That is to say, the Lord himself will remind Timothy on that coming judgment day that he was told that he needed to do this. And that means that if Timothy isn't faithful to this charge, there will be consequences. Of course, if he's faithful to the charge, well, then there'll be rewards. The only thing Timothy isn't going to be able to do in that moment is to claim that he didn't know. And likewise, because we know this charge has been issued more broadly than just for Timothy's sake, anyone in the church, anyone in the history of the church, working in a similar ministerial role, is likewise on notice by this charge and will likewise be called to account if they fail to heed it. So what is the charge? Three words. Verse 2, Paul says, preach the word. Timothy's charge is to preach the word of God. This is, I think, the climactic verse in Paul's entire letter. After all that has been said in the letter about the problems in Ephesus, about all the risks of shrinking back, of all of the things he wants to see Timothy do, the real answer is it's come down to one simple solution. The solution to dealing with false teachers, preach the word. The solution to having misguided or deceived believers led astray, preach the word. The solution to persecution, preach the word. The solution to apostasy in the church, you get the point. Look more carefully at what this charge involves, though. Notice he says, preach the word, not teach the word. Merely teaching the word of God would not have been sufficient on Timothy's part to satisfy this charge. He wouldn't have been doing what he was told. It's not enough for us either today. Biblical preaching moves beyond teaching in two essential ways. First, the Greek word for preach means to proclaim in a public sense. Preaching is a public proclamation of truth. You can also go out into the streets and conduct teaching in a public setting, yes. But usually, when you think of teaching, teaching is delivered to students in a semi-private setting. Preaching, though, is targeted at those who aren't necessarily looking for instruction, that didn't sign up for a teaching. Paul calls Timothy here to publicly proclaim the truth in that sense, to preach the word. Remember, the pressure was building for Timothy and other pastors in this time to hide, right? This was a time of growing persecution. The instinct would have been to lower your visibility in the culture, to avoid public witnessing, to talk quietly, to only talk in homes or in small groups with people that you could trust and that you knew wanted to hear what you had to say. That's the tendency to move inwardly during a time of persecution. The last thing many of those pastors would have wanted to do was to go out publicly and proclaim the gospel. And yet Paul says that's precisely what you have to do. Proclaim the word, whether on a street corner, in a synagogue, or while you're standing before kings and authorities under threat of death. Preach the word. Be public in your testimony. The second thing that distinguishes preaching from teaching is that it includes a call for the hearer to respond to something. Like teaching, you have to deliver a truth, and that truth will have an impact on the ear. But unlike teaching, preaching will then demand a response from the heart in the moment. So preaching takes a teaching, proclaims it publicly, and then demands that the audience come to a conclusion about what they've heard. Paul wants Timothy to drive the people of Ephesus to make a personal response one way or the other to what they're hearing. Timothy was leaning toward working only in safe places, maybe only with Christians, maybe where he could avoid rocking the boat in the culture. A pastor that thinks like that literally can't preach 
because they can't be bringing themselves to the point of a public moment of proclamation which has as its purpose the conversion of people who would otherwise be opposed to what they hear. You have to go into the fight to change some of those minds. Paul demands that even as the culture was pressing Timothy to be quiet, that was reason for Timothy to be all the more ready to press the culture back to decide for Christ. So the first half of this charge is preach. And the thing used to preach was the word, which of course means to proclaim the scriptures. But that's an important distinction. Timothy was not free to preach whatever message he happened to think up. He was called to preach the word. And Paul's saying that all good preaching is predicated on teaching the Bible. That is to say, any so-called preaching that does not unfold the meaning of Scripture has no authority and lacks any power. It is merely pontificating. It lacks the authority of Scripture. It's just one guy or gal in some cases standing up talking to you. It has no power apart from the Word, because they have no power of their own. Furthermore, the conclusions that are drawn in the course of that preaching, they must agree with Scripture. And there are men who will take the Word, put it into their talk, and use it as the backdrop, but when you listen carefully to what they say, their own conclusions don't agree with what was written in the text they cited. A pastor's interpretation must be exegetically sound. His conclusions must be those that were intended by the Scriptures themselves. The preacher is not free to invent his own message or his own theme, or his own response to what's being called for out of the text. In short, the Lord does not need men to repackage his word, or to dress it up with gimmicks, or to distill it down to three perfectly alliterated points. That's not preaching if it's not true to the text. Honest preaching emphasizes the power of the text and leads the preacher to fade into the background. Contrived preaching that places the attention on the preacher rather than on the meaning of the text distracts people from the Word of God. You don't remember the Word, you remember what the guy did, or how he said it, or what joke led into it. Preaching the Word means approaching the Word of God honestly, dividing it rightly, and returning to it consistently. Paul issued this charge to protect the church, but Paul knew his charge would not be popular within the church. Many pastors that hear this message from Paul wouldn't like it. Not in that day, not today. They don't like the demands of it. They don't like the risks that come with it. Especially in a world that's beset with persecution for teaching the Word. And then there are the congregations who in many cases aren't going to be happy to sit under the Word of God. Especially if the result of that teaching was a call to conviction or a call to suffering for Christ. No one wants to hear that. Which is why Paul adds in verse 2, this charge, preach the Word, must be kept in season and out of season. A season refers to a period of time, whether long or short period of time of history. And so in season would mean a period of history or of time when preaching the word of God is acceptable, it's easy, it's approved by the culture. Conversely, then out of season would mean a time when preaching the word is unacceptable, it's difficult, it's likely to result in rejection or persecution. Timothy's charge, and as I said, the charge to all pastors, is to preach the word of God without interruption and without concern for how it is received. Preach it in season, which means take full advantage of those times when preaching the word is acceptable, and then preach it out of season, which means the opposite, of course. Preach it even when you know it's going to create discomfort. Historically, the church has been enjoying a season when Bible teaching has been acceptable, when it's been in season, going back to at least the 18th century. Even today, most places in the world still allow the Bible to be taught, and some in those places still desire to hear it. But I think that's changing. 
Today, it's easy to find pastors and churches that have forgotten Paul's charge, and they do so at the risk of their own judgment. Many would tell you that they preach the word from the pulpit, but do nothing of the sort, in my experience. Some have even had the phrase Bible in the name of the church, but when you actually listen to what's preached on Sunday, you find very little true preaching according to the definitions we just uncovered in Scripture, and even less of the word. And then there are other cases where there are churches who have intentionally, purposely, consciously moved away from teaching the word. And they'll tell you they've done so intentionally, and they'll give you justifications Many of the same reasons that were being given in Timothy's day for why Timothy and the other pastors of Asia were retreating from doing the very same thing. Some will tell you that their congregations won't tolerate the word. They're going to be confused or they're offended or they're turned off by it. Others will tell you that they're just more comfortable with a topical, lighter style teaching, which would just tell you that they're probably not qualified to divide the word. Others don't see why teaching the Bible from the pulpit is even a necessity. We got classes for that. We got Sunday schools for that. To me, that's just another indication of biblical illiteracy in the pastor if they don't understand why they should be preaching the word. What's most ironic about all of this is that Paul gave Timothy this charge. He said, preach the word in order to counteract those very same situations that already existed in Ephesus in their own way. For example, in Ephesus, we've already learned the church had those who would not tolerate the word or were not ready for the persecution that would come if, in fact, they preached it. And then we heard that there were those who preferred ear-tickling, worldly chatter and myths and other favorable topics. And then there were those who, Paul says, remain forever untaught, although they're always pursuing some kind of novel teaching, but they're never really learning. False teachers. We have all these same situations. The biggest shame in the church today is this tendency to jettison the Word of God in a misguided effort to solve the very problems that the Bible says preaching the Word solves. Weak pastors who refuse to teach the word are just setting themselves up for a poor judgment before Christ because they fail to keep this charge. And the worst of it for them is that their disobedience in preaching the word is going to result in generations of believers growing up unequipped in their knowledge of the word. And that leads them into apathy or outright apostasy, which then means millions of Christ-believing people are going to end up at their own judgment poorly prepared because their shepherds weren't obeying this charge. In verses 3 and 4, Paul says, The pattern will only grow worse as our age progresses because Paul says there will come a time, and he's speaking now in future tense from his day, there comes a time when the church itself will not endure sound teaching. Today that sounds quite reasonable to our understanding of what we see. I think in Paul's day it would have been a shock for someone to hear that. The Greek word translated time there, he says a time will come. It's the same word again for season. So as he just said in and out of season, now he says there's coming a season in which Bible teaching will be out of season. Believers aren't just going to be disinterested in doctrine or ignorant of doctrine. They're going to be against doctrine and pro-myth and pro-excitement. Anti-doctrine, they're against it. You're going to find the church won't sit for it, he says. They're going to call it divisive, boring. It's unnecessary. It's confusing. It drives people away. They won't come back. Not just against bad teaching of it or poor teaching of it. They're against it at all. Instead, they're going to seek for something different, Paul says. More exciting teaching, which he calls ear-tickling teaching. And the term ear-tickling, tickling of ears, is particularly revealing. Tickling, in the simple sense of how you entertain a child, produces laughter in the child. But it's counterfeit joy. It's not coming from the inside of the person. It's external stimulation. And once that external stimulation stops, so does the joy. Similarly, tickling the ears then refers to a satisfaction or joy in what's being heard 
but it's temporary and it's external only. It's teaching that never penetrates the heart. It creates no lasting impression. If you happen upon a church that teaches in the ways I'm implying, without the word, not preaching it in a, in a proper way, ask yourself what you remember from anything that's ever been taught there. My guess is you'll remember highlights like props, jokes, staged moments. I doubt you'll remember anything that's fundamentally altered your walk in life, unless it had the word at the heart of it. And whatever that enjoyment was, whatever value you saw in a passing form in the middle of that sermon, the moment the preacher stops talking, the enjoyment of it ends as well. There's no lasting value. That's what Paul is implying when he talks about ear tickling. Any teaching that does not find its root in the word of God and preaches the truth of what the word holds is entertainment, not edification. When that season comes upon the church, Paul says, congregations will gain the upper hand over their shepherds. Paul says congregations will begin to seek for, or as Paul says, accumulate, or the word in Greek could have been translated collect, like someone who has a hobby. He says congregations will begin to collect teachers that meet their desires. Collecting suggests something, doesn't it? It suggests that people maintain a stable of religious teachers like the way we collect recipe books. And so you have one way to do pasta or another way to do pasta. Which way do I feel like having tonight? So the teaching comes at us based on our desires, not what we need. And if someone says something like, well, I don't like what that person said, or I don't like how they're telling me I have to change this or that, well, then what do we do? We walk away. We pick another teacher off the shelf. We only stick with the guys or gals that give us what we want. That's what Paul says. No one in this coming age is truly submitted to authority when it comes to truth or teaching. It's a key problem in the last days, and I think it's actually the enabler for what comes in the last days. It sets up the circumstances or the environment in which the false teaching of the last days can take root and dominate in the apostasy of the last days church because nobody has any authority to dictate what is right. Everyone seeks for what they prefer. That's why I think Laodicea is the city that Jesus chose to represent the last days period in the seven letters of Revelation. The name Laodicea means people ruling. It's indicative of the last day's church being where the sheep are leading the shepherds instead of the shepherds leading the sheep. And of course, we don't see that in literal terms. The men who run our churches have power and authority in the congregation and in the church. But that's not Paul's point. He's saying that those men are bending their will to meet the needs of the congregation for fear that either they'll run the people off or the people will run them off. They dare not hold the line on strict, proper Bible teaching because they'll either lose their job or they'll lose their congregation, which becomes a way of ceding all power to the congregation because we're too worried about what happens when we preach the word. So the last day's church has everyone collecting teachers that tell them only what they want to hear. The word desire there, when he says they accumulate teachers according to their own desires, that word in Greek is literally the word lust. The desires the last day's church want to see fulfilled are lustful desires, not spiritual desires. It's perfectly fine to desire for teaching. In fact, it's very good that you desire for teaching. And it's very good if you desire for a lot of different teaching, so long as that desire comes out of a spiritual desire for spiritual growth. So occasionally, for whatever reason, someone might say, oh, we listen to your teaching and we don't listen to anyone else's. And I cringe when I hear that because I think that's setting somebody up for a fall because wherever I'm wrong, they're wrong. They need good teachers who then complement each other in their approach to Scripture in such a way that there's a self-correcting quality in how the Spirit works through multiple voices. But that's a collecting out of a desire for spiritual growth. Paul says in the last day's church, it'll be a collection for lustful reasons. That is to say, the church isn't seeking to collect strong theologians. They're looking for men who will feed their desire for money. 
or for power or for strength or for any other lust, right? You tell me I can have what I've been wanting, I'm all ears. Tell me more. You tell me I need to become more holy and sacrificing for the Lord? You know, let's pick a different teacher. Of course, a church that won't tolerate sound doctrine and wants easy, feel-good entertainment is ripe for myths. And that's what Paul says. They embrace myths instead of truth. Truth is always hard to hear, whether it's coming from your boss or from your spouse or from your pastor. Truth is not easy because it challenges the sin of prideful hearts. Unless you are literally perfect, at some point the truth is going to come to you in a way that doesn't make you feel good about yourself. That's intentional, right? No one's flesh likes to hear that they aren't perfect or as lovable as they think they are. But if they're willing to listen, the effect of that teaching is they become more lovable. And no one likes to hear that you may have to face sufferings for following Christ. No one likes doctrine. I mean, honestly, Paul talks about enduring. Notice he said that, enduring sound doctrine. He understands it takes work to sit through one of these studies. It's endurance. This is not entertainment, or generally not. And I'm not saying it shouldn't be or that it can't be. What I'm saying, though, is that if it's truly going to have doctrine, that part of the job is going to be tough for me, and it should be tough for you. It's going to challenge what we understand. But it's what we need if we're to become more like Christ. Those who follow the pattern that Paul is outlining here, that is, those who seek for teachers according to their own desires, who follow myths, that's a Christian living in the flesh, by definition. Someone who wants their flesh fed, not their spirit. No wonder the church has become such a carnal community. Paul says the antidote, you already know. Preach the word. So you preach the word to build up your congregation's ability to appreciate the wisdom of God. You preach the word to keep pastors from falling into a lazy pattern of just repeating ear-tickling, folksy wisdom sermons every week that they pulled off the internet or they recycled from two years ago. If you're in the process of preaching the word regularly, you don't fall into that pattern of lazy teaching. You preach the word to correct the church's shameful descent into biblical illiteracy. You preach the word to counter false teachers. Name a problem in the church, and I'll name the solution. Preach the word. The charge has not changed since Paul issued it. It's just as real today and necessary as it was then, if not more so. And, I should add, when it's observed, the church has been strengthened historically. It's been prepared to suffer in persecution. It's been ready for those moments. It's been ready to rebuke false teaching. And when the charge has been set aside, namely in our day, or if it's ignored, forgotten, etc., the church gets weak. Godliness wanes, faithfulness is in short supply, false teaching becomes endemic. I think you could agree, I hope you'd agree, that we're watching a changing of seasons happening today. We might disagree about how far along we are in the path of change, but I think it's evident that it's happening. Congregations are increasingly intolerant of in-depth Bible teaching. You know, if you've got too many people and your building's not able to hold them all, let me preach there for a while, I'll solve that problem for you. So many pastors are moving their preaching in the direction of ear-tickling, and they do so in order to keep and attract larger audiences. We're entering a time when the word is decidedly out of season, which is all the more reason why we need pastors, Paul says, to reprove, rebuke, exhort, and instruct their congregations with the word. Reprove means to convict a person of sin, to say something that brings sin to their mind. Think of it as an emotional appeal to repentance. To rebuke is to do the same thing, to bring someone to conviction, but it is an appeal to the intellect by explaining why a change is necessary. To exhort is to encourage action in response to that conviction. So I either reprove or rebuke, depending on whether I'm trying to correct someone's thinking while they're living. And in both cases, I bring an exhortation to change. 
Anytime you work to get someone to move away from the wrong things and toward the right things, you need a fulcrum, metaphorically. You need some way of dislodging their disobedient heart from their existing rut. You need something that will pull them out of their thinking or their behavior. And Paul says, the Word of God is that divinely appointed tool. That when they hear the Word, it has power beyond the words to bring someone's heart into a state of repentance. So when they don't want to hear the Word, that's when they need to hear the Word the most. It'd be like a child who doesn't like to hear that they are in trouble, doesn't like to be corrected. Isn't that the child you need to correct the most? It's exactly the same principle in the church. That's why Paul adds, it must be done with instruction and patience. That is, you have to teach people from the Word to prepare their hearts to understand and obey it. And you need patience for that process because you're living in times when people don't want to sit for it. It's like a parent trying to teach a young child to eat their vegetables. They don't like it at first, but if you stick with it, in time they come to appreciate the benefits of eating the right kind of food. If you give up too quickly, your kid's eating hot dogs and french fries when they're 20. Not that there's anything wrong with hot dogs or french fries. In moderation. Paul then turns again to encouraging Timothy to do better than those who would only preach ear-tickling. He says in verse 5, But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry, Timothy. And he gives three steps for how Timothy is to fulfill his calling in ministry. First, be sober and being ready for whatever comes. Don't live naively. Don't be without an awareness of the dangers and the trends, the nature of the times. Secondly, endure hardship. That is, don't take the responsibility of pastoring without an appreciation that it does come with difficulties. And there are pastors who I think underestimate that, and so they take the path of least resistance. And whatever makes their congregations happy, whatever helps them keep their job, that's how they will fulfill their ministry. Probably the worst thing that's happened to ministry and pastoral ministry in the last 300 years or so is the rise of vocational ministry. Prior to three, four hundred years ago, your average pastor was not full-time. They might be a farmer, they might be a tradesman, they might be itinerant. And uh, they preached when they had the chance. They led the church in between doing other duties. Most churches were in small towns, small congregations. There wasn't one paid full-time guy, much less a staff and a corporation and all the rest. As we have created, in the way we do church now, this whole infrastructure of vocational ministry, we put this whole new pressure on these people. And that pressure is this. Just like any corporate leader, I've got to make the shareholders happy. Well, in relative terms, congregations are shareholders, and the pastor is the corporate leader. And so we start tailoring what we say and how we say it to keep everybody happy. And if I have a $30,000 gas bill in my giant mega church, I can't afford to have anyone not there on the next Sunday. And it puts a pressure on how I preach and what I do. The problem with that, of course, is we stop preaching the word. Unless I have the courage to let that $30,000 gas bill go unpaid some months and get those who want to hear the word. That's preaching the word publicly with a call to repentance. This is the call, Paul says, for every minister. Be sober, endure hardship. And then lastly, he says, do the work of an evangelist. Now, we said earlier in the first letter to Timothy that Timothy's gift was probably not evangelism. It was probably pastoral ministry. I think what he's saying is, as a pastor, your ministry has evangelistic potential. And as a pastor, keep in mind that you could reach the unbeliever. That's the big part of your work. And you need to be thinking about your job that way. So in other words, when you preach, you've got to be public or you're ignoring the evangelistic opportunities of your job. Be like a pastor who hides the fact that he's a pastor at any point except Sunday morning. That's someone who's not doing the work of an evangelist. 
That's the call for every minister, and he's concerned that Timothy would take up this role. Now we're going to change as we move to the end of the letter in a more personal reflection on Paul's part, also intended to encourage Timothy, but now looking at Paul's life, and some very interesting things come out of this. Verse 6, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He uses two euphemisms from daily Jewish life to speak about his impending death. Paul says he was being poured out as a drink offering. In the Jewish temple, priests had to perform a daily sacrifice. There were sacrifices in the morning, there were sacrifices in the evening. And the final act in that sacrificial service was to pour out a drink, a wine drink, poured on the ground as an offering to God. And Paul compares his life of service to the Lord as to the contents of that offering cup. That is to say, his entire life of service was like that precious liquid. And like the liquid, it's poured out slowly, very ritually, until it's empty. And Paul is speaking about his life that way, that as the cup goes empty eventually, so will Paul's life come to an end eventually. And it's being poured out like the liquid as a sacrifice given to honor the Lord. Secondly, Paul says he's preparing to depart. You notice he says his departure. Departures were a very common occurrence in that day in life, in ancient life. Journeys were often required for things like commerce, religious observance, traveling to Jerusalem, family visits in another town. And those kinds of journeys took significant time. You would be gone for a while and then you'd come back. If it was a long distance, you might be gone for many years. We don't think of it the same way today except under rare circumstances, like someone who has a military assignment that takes them away from home for a year or more. That's the kind of departure we're talking about here. And so Paul's implying that he's about to take a separation from Timothy, that is, he'll be gone for a while, but there would be a return. They'd meet again, ultimately. In both examples, Paul's referring to a death that he must have known was coming soon. In Acts 9, Jesus says when he recruits Paul, that he would show Paul all that Paul would have to suffer for his namesake. So I presume Paul may have known when he would die, to some degree, and how he was going to die. That may have been part of what was revealed to him, the burden he would have carried his whole life. Therefore, I think he had some insight to know why he thought he wasn't going to escape this one, he wasn't going to be let out of Nero's prison in Rome, that in fact Nero was going to take his life. So to encourage Timothy under these circumstances, Paul says, here's my state of mind, Timothy. You want to know what I'm thinking as I face my death? Here's what I'm thinking. And he begins to reflect. Notice what he's reflecting on. His testimony of service. He says, I fought the good fight. That's the fight for the gospel, the ministry fight. He finished his course, which is a way of saying I fulfilled my mission, the calling that had been revealed by the Holy Spirit. He says, I've kept the faith, which is to say he's kept the very same charge that he just put before Timothy. The faith in this case means keeping to the message, to the proclamation of that message, not to change it, depart from it, soften it, avoid it. Notice those phrases tie back to the metaphors that Paul used in chapter 3 when he told Timothy how Timothy should live. Remember, he told him to think like a soldier, think like an athlete. And here he says, I fought like a soldier would fight. I've run the race like an athlete would run. That's the best any servant of God can hope to say as they look back on their life when they know that death is right around the corner. I have a testimony of faithful execution of the duties assigned to me. And if you think about that for just a moment, it would imply, would have to mean that I knew what I was assigned. 
I didn't run through my entire Christian life oblivious to my gifting in the Spirit, to my calling within the body. It doesn't mean pastoral ministry, obviously. It doesn't mean full-time ministry. It doesn't mean anything formal. It just means you woke up every day knowing why God has you on this earth for a period of time and you're serving that need. And it probably changes over the course of any lifetime. It's not always the same, but you always knew where you were supposed to go. You always had a general idea. I think without that, you're going to be hard-pressed to come to the end of your life and say what Paul's saying, I ran the race. Most of us will be saying, I wish I'd found the race course. I'm not sure where the beginning was, much less the end. I mean, that's worst case, but I think Paul is giving us the best case as an example from his own life. And that's the call he's putting on Timothy. I think what he's asking Timothy to do is, can you be ready for your death the way I'm ready for mine? Will you have the same testimony in your day that I can have now? If Paul had reason to believe Timothy would be able to follow, that he would be able to emulate, well, then that would tell us that we all have the same potential. I mean, Timothy wasn't an apostle. He wasn't visited by Christ. And in other words, don't ever believe the lie that the rest of us stand no chance of doing what Paul did. What Paul received that made him different, he gave to us in Scripture. He says he never held back anything. He says in Acts, as he's approaching his last trip to Rome, he says, I did not fail to give you the whole counsel of God. He's saying, everything I knew I gave you. So if we take advantage of what he's given us in the Word, then we're on a level playing field with him. We have the same spirit, the same insight. We have all the same opportunity, the same potential to equal his testimony. When we do that, Paul says, we will also equal his reward. Paul says there is a crown of righteousness laid up for him, for Paul, in heaven. Now, a crown refers, in this case, to Paul's reward. The reward that we talked about off and on when we talk about the judgment seat of Christ. What God will award, what Christ awards to individual believers as a recognition of how he served him. And Paul says for his fulfillment of ministry, he'll have a crown of righteousness. The Bible often talks about our eternal rewards in this way, as crowns of one kind or another. There's a number of different ones mentioned in Scripture. In Revelation, when we see a vision from John's perspective of what the throne room of heaven will look like after the rapture, after the church has been removed from the earth and is present with the Lord in the throne room, we hear that the believers are casting their crowns in front of the throne to God as a way of showing honor to him and thanks to him for having been able to serve him. We read this, Revelation 4.10, The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. So it's a beautiful picture, right? God has enlisted us in his service. We serve him faithfully. He delights to turn around and reward us. And then in the heavenly realm, as we reach that point of being with him after the rapture, we turn around and acknowledge that what we did, we did in his power anyway. It wasn't of our own by returning the crown, if you will. But for some believers, this is where the idea of rewards gets a bit confusing. Because if you've studied on this topic, you know the scripture also calls our rewards tangible things in the kingdom. Our reward, for example, will be a portion of Christ's inheritance of land on the earth. We'll all receive some portion of land to live on, on this earth. Christ's inheritance is the whole of the earth, and he shares his inheritance with his children, we're told. And how much of that is dependent on what he wants to bless us with, presumably based on what we've earned. And we're also told in Scripture that we'll have an opportunity to reign with him in the government that reigns over the earth during the kingdom. And our position in that government will be dependent on how faithful we were in serving him now. So when we hear those things, and then we hear elsewhere about crowns, we wonder, where do crowns fit in? The crowns that we receive after the rapture are the symbols, tokens, of the reward we will have on earth. 
you receive the crowns like badges of honor. And you hold them while you're in the throne room waiting for the kingdom to appear on earth and for your return with Christ to occupy that kingdom. Once the kingdom begins, you move from heaven back to the earth and at that point, maybe you turn your crown in. Maybe you wear it, but whatever you do with it, it has been a temporary token representing the ultimate reward that you'll receive as you come to earth in physical form. Paul says that he expects the crown of righteousness to be his, but notice he says it's not mine alone. It will be shared by all who, quote, loved his appearing. That's a subtle way, an artful way of saying everyone who has a similar life of faithful ministry, because a person who loves the appearing of Christ is someone who's living with eyes for eternity. Because the appearing of Christ is synonymous with our judgment moment. Their love for that moment is a driving force in their life, causing them to focus their thinking and their actions on what will be best for that moment. Think of it like this. If you studied for a test, did well in all of the preliminary exams, know the material backward, forward, are you looking forward to the final exam so you can rock it and get that A that you were looking for, right? You're ready for it. That's loving the appearing of the test. But if you have not been a good student, if you really haven't kept up on the work, you're dreading that day. Those who love his appearing are those who, like Paul, ran the race, I finished the course, I'm ready for my judgment. I know I have a good testimony. So to equal Paul's reward, we need to equal his outlook in life, such that we then result in an equally good testimony. So a Christian who lives their life with an expectation for the Lord's return and all that it brings is motivated to serve well, and they then will be well rewarded. That was Paul's testimony. He's telling Timothy that can be your testimony, and if it can be Timothy's, it can be ours. It's not out of reach. It's not too late. The whole reason we have this book is to motivate us to that outcome. So use it as it's intended. Now the letter comes to a close with some final instructions, and we'll move through it fairly quickly. Verse 9, reading a large section of it here, Paul says, Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But Tychicus, Tychicus has sent, uh, I have sent to Ephesus. When you come back, bring the cloak, which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. Paul begins asking Timothy, visit me in Rome before I die. He didn't expect to live very long. We don't know if Timothy made it or not. When Paul did die, he would have died the death reserved for Roman citizens. Paul was a Roman citizen. Roman citizens were not crucified. That was a death that was outlawed for Roman citizens. But that hardly means they died easily. Walter Locke explains it this way. The constitutional method of capital punishment for a Roman citizen was by a lictor's axe. The criminal was tied to a stake, cruelly scourged with rods, and then beheaded. Next, Paul gives Timothy instructions concerning a number of these people, probably to remind Timothy at what's at stake and to finish off some loose ends, maybe. Many of these men he mentions here, the first three anyway, they are probably other leaders in Asia, perhaps the men Paul mentioned earlier in the letter that had abandoned the ministry. I think maybe he wanted Timothy to understand how high the stakes were here, so... First, he mentions Demas. Demas was a Christian who, he says, chased after the pleasures of the world. He ran off to Thessalonica. Others, Crescens, these men, Crescens and Titus. That's not the same man as the, the book name. It's not Titus from the book. It's a different Titus. 
They fled to Galatia and Dalmatia. So these are just men who went to the dogs. The word flee, when he says they fled, that word would suggest that they were leaving the scene because perhaps of Paul's arrest or because of other circumstances of persecution. Then he says, moving on, he says, Luke remains. This is the Luke that wrote the gospel and the book of Acts. Luke had a long history of faithfulness to Paul. He followed Paul since his second missionary journey everywhere after that. As a result of staying so close to Paul, he was able to write those two books. His primary source for those books was Paul. So we often say that the Gospel of Luke is really the Gospel according to Paul. The lesson you learn there, of course, is faithfulness opens a door for the Lord to accomplish great things through us. Then after Luke, it says Mark. If you remember from Acts 13, Mark abandoned Paul and Barnabas. Luke records it as being a negative. Now Paul says to Timothy, go get Mark, bring him with you to Rome. He can be useful. This is an interesting little moment, right? It's an example that a moment of unfaithfulness does not have to be the last word in our testimony. Something must have transpired since then to give Paul greater confidence in Mark. And he just picked up, he moved on in faithfulness, and he's now useful to the Lord in something new. Paul then mentions Tychicus coming to Ephesus to see Timothy. He says, when you come, bring a cloak. The cloak was left at Troas, he says, and wants it back now, which would suggest he's enduring cold weather or soon to be enduring cold weather. This is interesting for one reason. It's the closest Paul comes to letting on about his own suffering in the midst of his circumstances. If it weren't for this, you'd never know he had any issues at all. Then he says, I want books, particularly the parchments. Of course, he's describing the Old Testament parchments. He's describing scrolls of Scripture. So imagine Paul, a man who would probably memorized the Scriptures, still wanting copies so he could read them as he faced death. It's the best example in all of his writings of how much he valued the Word of God. If you had a few days to live and you could get anything you wanted to read, what would it be? One commentator observed, there's an interesting historical parallel to Paul's request. William Tyndale, who you may know, he translated the first New Testament in English. He was imprisoned in Vilvorde Castle near Brussels by the Catholics before his execution for having dared to put an English version of the Bible out because the Catholics thought that was a sin. He was executed in 1536. But in the year preceding his death, while he's in jail, he wrote to the governor begging for warmer clothing and a Hebrew Bible. The same two things Paul wanted. Then Paul warns Timothy about Alexander, the same guy we saw in 1 Timothy 1, having done much harm to Paul, probably by false teaching or maligning his character, something like that. But notice he didn't ask for any retaliation or punishment. He just says, the Lord will take care of this guy. That's a scarier outcome than anything else I could have said. And let's wrap the letter up. A few last instructions. Verse 16. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me, the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To, To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Ebulus greets you, also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. These are the last recorded words of the Apostle Paul. He's speaking, I think, obliquely about a unique moment. Notice he says, At my first defense, this is probably the first moment that he came before Nero in a pre-trial hearing over the charges against him. Paul says, as I went to my first defense, no one was there with me. I stood by myself. 
Then he says, The Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished. I think what he's saying is that hearing before Nero gave him an opportunity to do the very thing he told Timothy to do, to proclaim the word publicly. Who would have been the one he proclaimed to under those circumstances? It would have been Nero. And in doing so, that explains the second half of verse 17, that all the Gentiles might hear. It's somewhat of a hyperbola. Obviously, there's no guarantee that every human being on earth that was Gentile had heard Paul. That's not his point. He means in the sense of all strata, all levels. Even the Caesar himself now had heard the gospel preached in his day. That is to say, I was brought here for that reason. That would be the implication. Notice how similar his situation was to Christ. As Christ faced death and trial, no one stood with him either. He stood alone. And he was about to be put to death in the same way that Christ was, with the Lord strengthening him, standing beside him, giving a chance to proclaim through his death something that couldn't be proclaimed otherwise. Paul being able to proclaim the message of the gospel to one Gentile who couldn't have ever heard it otherwise, except that Paul be persecuted. Otherwise, he never would have had a hearing. I'm not saying he converted him. We know that. But he has reasons to preach otherwise. He makes an intriguing reference there to a lion's mouth. It's probably metaphoric. In other words, don't get into thinking that he did actually face a lion and was rescued in some miraculous way. There's no reason to expect that. The text doesn't even suggest that. It speaks euphemistically. I think he's drawing on the book of Daniel and the experience of Daniel in that moment. Because in Daniel's case, you had a prophet persecuted by a godless ruler, yet God used his situation to bring glory to himself. And I think that's the same now for Paul. Paul was brought before a godless man, and God has used that situation to bring glory for himself. He rescued him out of Nero's hands temporarily, in the sense that he didn't die in the moment. But he won't be living for long, it appears. Eventually, every prophet dies, even Jesus. The ultimate rescue, of course, is not that kind anyway. The ultimate rescue for the believer is the rescue from the second death, not the first death. So, as we pass from this life... We enter into a new eternal life. And in verse 18, Paul talks of that rescue. He talks about having his spirits be up, being encouraged, having strength to face death. Because he knew he had run the race well and he knew what lay on the other side of death. It's a glory. It's being safe. It's living in the heavenly kingdom. This testimony for how he was preparing to face death was an attempt to strengthen Timothy, a man who was facing persecution. It's been said the seeds of the faith have been watered by the blood of the martyrs. Paul's example is a perfect illustration of this. Here's one guy standing firm in the face of death, using that to inspire the next guy, Timothy, to do the same. And not because we all share the death wish, but because we share the same perspective on death. We're rescued from a fallen world, even now. And the sinful body that we have right now is going to the grave sooner or later, one way or the other. And on the other side of it is a glory in an eternal kingdom. So literally, death is the best possible outcome for the believer because it it leaves us escaping one thing to get the better. It's hard to have that perspective in your heart as you face the moment because your body is naturally not designed to die. There's an instinctive appreciation that this is not what God wanted. And yet we must go through it. What holds you faithful in that pressure cooker? knowing as much as you can about what's on the other side, which Scripture gives us. Now Paul concludes with greetings. You have Priscilla and Aquila from Acts fame. Remember, they lead a house church in Ephesus. They're obviously important to Paul. Then you have Anisiphorus. He mentioned him in chapter 1 as being one of the faithful men. And then he tells Timothy about two guys that we think probably were Timothy's associates, and he just wants to let Timothy know they're with him. Erastus. And then Trophimus. Notice something interesting there. Trophimus. Paul says, I left him sick. Remember, Paul had the apostolic gift of healing. 
Either he didn't use it, or the Lord didn't allow him to use the healing here. Circle this little verse if you want, or this little mention, because this is a place you would go to refute somebody who says God always heals. So if God had Paul with the capacity to heal, and Paul says, I left him sick, it would tell you instinctively that apostolic gifts were intended to serve a greater ministerial purpose. They're not ultimately to serve earthly needs. We all die sooner or later, so you can't be healed forever. And then Paul adds an urgent request to come before winter, probably because traveling in winter is tough, but also because he wanted his coat. And then he adds a greeting from a few men who were in the church of Rome there that Timothy must have known, ending with saying, the Lord is with him in spirit, that is, the Holy Spirit living in each believer is literally the Lord present with us. So, friends, while we await for the appearing of the Lord, and I hope our minds have been turned to that by this letter, if not already, keep in mind, he is literally present with you by his spirit. He will see you face to face soon enough for your judgment. And Paul says, grace be with you to Timothy and to us, because it is by the grace of God you've been saved. It will be by that same grace that you will be living with Christ. He'll be teaching you. He'll be leading you into righteousness. Lean on him. Lean on him for your understanding. Lean on him to bring you to the end of your life one day with a similar testimony and a similar confidence. Because, friends, one day we will all be together with Paul We'll be admiring each other's crowns. Let's see who can get the best one by serving Christ the best, right? That's the goal. Thank you for being a part of this study. I hope it's been edifying to you. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the inspiration of what Paul did and what he wrote. His model, his example, his teaching. Father, I thank you for his beginning. A man who persecuted the church. For any of us, Father, who might feel a bit hesitant to... to, uh, Look and expect for good things in our judgment day, perhaps because of our past, because we aren't sure we've done enough to serve you well. Well, Father, we know none of us have done enough. But it's not about that, Father. It's about a a faithful track record from the point at which you have informed us of the need. And we've been informed today. I pray that today would be the start of a new race, a new opportunity to serve, Father, for anyone who desires it, and that in the day that you appoint, as we stand before you for our judgment, Father, we will have seen... The, um, the grace that you showed us through this study manifest in the grace of a great reward. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.